So good. We got any CNU students out there tonight? Come on. I know. I know. College is back in session. My wife's going to say, quit talking about it because we've got one leaving and it's hard on a mama's heart. Hard on a mama's heart. Dads are like, you're going to start paying your own bills or what? I don't know. I don't know. It's so good. John 3, 1 to 17. John 3, 1 to 17. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. We're going to talk about what that means. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a New Living Translation. I love the New Living Translation, but sometimes I don't like it. And this is an example because what it should say there, instead of I tell you the truth, there should be two words there. King James, verily, verily, or some translations render it truly, truly. We're going to talk about that. What, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. We're going to talk about that, what that means. How, how are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you, you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe when I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned but the Son of Man, speaking of himself. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This has been our summer series, Conversations, Dialogue with the Divine, and every week we've been picking a conversation that somebody has with God. Tonight we're going to be talking about this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, and we're going to explore together what I believe are three desires that Nicodemus demonstrates to us that we should share. The first one is, is that he wanted to be with Jesus. The second one we're going to talk about is that he wanted to talk to Jesus. And the third one is that he wanted to live for Jesus. Be with Jesus, talk to Jesus, and live for Jesus. The first one, wanted to be with Jesus. Now the first little part of this, you might say if you were a couple of weeks ago, didn't you say these same things? And my answer to you is yes, I did. Thank you for paying attention. And if you're asking, why am I doing again? I know this is going to come as a surprise to you. But people do not come to church every week. I know. And I know this is going to come as a surprise to you. When they don't come, they don't always watch the message and the service, even though it's on the YouTube channel. I know that's a shocker, but it's true. So let me just cover a little ground a second time. And I have the feeling as we're coming out of this pandemic, we're going to be talking about this even more. Just because he can meet you where you are doesn't mean he stops asking you to come to where he is. Just because he can meet you where you are doesn't mean he stops asking you to come where he is. Jesus knew that Nicodemus was supposed to be an important part of the gospel story. He knew that Nicodemus was supposed to be in Scripture. He knew that Nicodemus was an assignment for him, yet there is no indication that Jesus went out looking for him. There's no indication that Jesus was like, where? where I gotta find Nicodemus. We gotta talk. He waited for Nicodemus to come to him. And it's the same for you and for me. Can Jesus find us wherever we are? Yes, he can, and often he does. But there are times where he says to you and to me, come to where you know I'm going to be. And the church is certainly one of those places. Hebrews 10 25, right? The church is just a few decades old. And the writer of Hebrews is, has to say this to the church. Do not forsake the assembling together of one another. 
And I would say that to you again tonight. Online church is important. If you're watching from home, we're glad that you're here. Online church is not going anywhere, and I don't want it to go anywhere. It's a part of the future. And one of the reasons why I'm glad it's part of the future is because of its evangelistic impact. Even for us as a church, we're bringing the message of the gospel around the world like we never thought was possible. People tune in from all over the world every weekend. That would not be possible without online church. So we're fans of online church. It's benevolent. What does that mean? It means that sometimes people can't be here and shouldn't be here, especially during this pandemic as it's playing out. People that are immune compromised, people that have concern for their children, for their health, for their well-being. We say, that's okay. That's one of the reasons why Online Church is here. We're here for you. It's informative. People don't have to visit a church to visit a church. Right? It's safe. And I like that. People from the comfort of their own home, usually what we have found over this last year, when people come here, they've watched first. They've been a part of the service. Especially if you've got kids, you want to be careful about the environment that you're bringing them into. I love that. I love that it's timeless. Pastor Justin's message last week on forgiveness. Wow. If you've not heard that, you should check it out. I'm telling you, two years from now, you might be talking with a friend or a family member who's struggling with unforgiveness and the Holy Spirit's going to remind you, hey, remember that message that Pastor Justin preached back in the summer of 2021? And you're going to be able to go on to the City Life Church YouTube channel and it's going to be there. I love that. It's supplemental. This is important. Sometimes you can't be here. Sometimes you're traveling with your work. Sometimes you're deployed if you're in the military. Sometimes you are sick and at home. Then you can be a part of what's happening here in those moments. So we're fans of online church. But I, I just want to encourage you, what we're not fans of is that convenience becomes more important to you than being where Jesus is expecting you to show up. Do you want to be with Jesus like Nicodemus wanted to be with Jesus. Is there a desire in you to be in his presence? In verse 1, we're told some things about Nicodemus that are important. It's, it's not as though the Holy Spirit just didn't know what else to say, so he throws in some random commentary. Everything in the Bible that's here is for us and for our instruction. So we're not just told his name, but we're told a little bit about him. He is a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee, which means that he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, which means that he had wealth. It means that he had influence. It means that he had a prestigious role in society. It meant that he was highly, educa highly educated. He was checking the boxes that even today we would check for a secular definition of success. But it's interesting, isn't it, that this man by the name of Nicodemus, through this conversation that we see, that he realized something was missing in his life. And he believed that it was possible that maybe, just maybe, this man, Jesus, knew how to fill that void inside of him. Can I just tell you the same is true for you and me? You can chase all the things that the world tells you will satisfy and fulfill the definition of success. And even if you excel at those things more than anyone else for the rest of your life, if that's all that you chase after, at the end of your day, you will be empty on the inside. What I find intriguing about this story early on is that even though I'm celebrating the fact that Nicodemus wanted to come to Jesus. What we see is that Nicodemus was still bringing a secular mindset to a sacred moment. See, when you and I begin to realize there is an emptiness inside of us that only Jesus can satisfy, even before maybe you know who can even satisfy that, you just know there's an emptiness in there that you've never been able to satisfy. And you're trying and you're looking and you're seeking... Like Nicodemus, like him, we bring a secular mindset even when we step into sacred spaces. So that's one of the reasons why sometimes people can spend years in church 
and they're still just as empty years later as when they came because they won't stop bringing a secular mindset into sacred space. Listen, listen to what he says. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, at first glance, this looks like a compliment. And Nicodemus thinks it's a compliment. But it's because he's bringing a secular mindset into a sacred space. Because in his day, you would choose your rabbi, the person that you would follow was the one that you believed had the best interpretation of the Mosaic Law. So 2,000 years ago, you would choose your religious tribe based on the person that you felt was the most right. Because in his day, for Nicodemus, in his culture, it was more about being right than it was anything else. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? We haven't come very far in 2,000 years, have we? Judaism had devolved into religious intellectualism. See, so I'm, I'm a little suspicious here. I think Nicodemus had some mixed motives. I think he was feeling the emptiness that he had, even though he was checking all the boxes of success. But I feel like also Nicodemus is coming to Jesus because he wants to be with the one who is right. And so when he says God is with you, really, in many ways, what he's saying is, I'm not sure he's with anybody else. I think there's a, a bit of pride that we see here in Nicodemus' conversation early on. Luke 24, 32, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but it's the story of one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And it's on the road to Emmaus where he's walking with these two travelers and, and, and supernaturally Jesus just doesn't allow them to recognize who he is. And as they're walking on the road, when they get to the place where they're going and all of a sudden Jesus just disappears and teleports himself back to Jerusalem as they, as they realize that it was the risen Christ that, they were, that, that, that was with them, in their conversation with each other, they use this phrase, wasn't our heart burning inside of us when we were in his presence? What wasn't our heart burning inside of us as he began to open up the scriptures to us? Can I just tell you, Jesus still wants our hearts to burn in his presence today. Something inside of me should long for that feeling of passion, not pride. If we're not careful, we will continue to force Christianity into a place of religious intellectualism and we'll spend too much of our time talking about who's right and who's wrong, driven by pride because we want to be right and that feeds our ego. I want my heart to burn with passion and not with pride. If we neglect our need to be with Jesus, not only will our spiritual lives suffer greatly, but our children will inherit a form of Christianity that is broken. Jesus' response immediately challenges Nicodemus. He's saying it's not about information, Nicodemus. That's why he turns the conversation to being born again right away. Immediately, Jesus begins to take Nicodemus to a conversation about family, about being together, about somebody being our father, about being with one another, about love and affection and devotion. You see that? Jesus pivots the conversation immediately to this place. Because he's saying it's not about information, Nicodemus. You're coming for answers, and I get it, and we're going to get to that in just a minute, because Nicodemus does want to talk to Jesus, and Jesus does have a conversation with him. But he's saying to Nicodemus, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to be about being with me first before it becomes about the questions that you have. Religion is supposed to be first about a relationship, Jesus is telling Nicodemus he has spent his entire life seeking to learn about religion instead of seeking the greater treasure, which is being with his Savior. Let's make sure we're modeling that for our children and for our world. 
May our hearts burn to be with him. The second one is this, Nicodemus wanted to talk to Jesus. Now you might say, Fred, that feels a little bit like a contradiction to what you just said. It's, it's not. It's about priority. Christianity, religion, and doctrine, and beliefs, it's important. We did a whole series this year on, entitled Doxa, which is the seven non-negotiable for us foundational beliefs of Christianity. So, so being right, it is important. But if we start there, that's the only thing that Christianity becomes for us. Let me ask you this question. Are you willing to let Jesus change your mind? Are you willing to let him change your mind? If you're old like me, right? If when, this is how you, if, if when the fog machine comes on and your first thought is something's on fire, you're old like me. Right? When you see us advertising legend and the good enough, Concert? I was laughing. Oh, that's so great. I, I feel you, brother. I said to my wife, I did not say, we should get tickets and go to that. Because this is dancing to me right here. This is, this is all I got. I said to her, we should volunteer for that. They need volunteers. Yeah. So we're volunteer. I got my good enough t-shirt already. I know. If you're old like me, if you're old like me, have you changed your mind about anything consequential in the last 20 years? No, I'm asking. Have you changed your mind about anything consequential in the last 20 years? Because if you have not, you are either the undiscovered second coming of Christ or you've got some things that Jesus wants to change your mind about because you are not him. If you've not changed your mind about anything of consequence over the last 20 years, don't be proud of that. Don't be proud of that. Because all of us have false thinking. There, for all of us, there are things that we're just not, we're wrong about. And one of the reasons why diverse church is important to us is because if you live your life in an echo chamber, you're never going to see those things that you need to change your mind about. And one of the ways that Jesus often speaks to us about things that we need to change our mind about is he does it through other people that are also a part of his family, who are also a part of your family, if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. When the knowledge we gain is born out of a loving relationship with Jesus, we tend to use that knowledge in a more loving way towards others. See, you can have truth on your side and use it as a baseball bat to beat people up. Or you can use it as a kneeling bench that you get down and humble yourself and you use it to serve your fellow man. With the truth that you have, are you using it to serve people or are you using it to compete with other people's ideas? It's interesting to me that when Jesus, when he had his last few days here and he was just kind of pouring out everything that he needed to get done before he left. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. And when I go, right, he's saying, you're going to be my representation on this earth. Apostle Paul calls us ambassadors. And then he says, you know what, and they're going to know that you're mine by your intellectual prowess because you're going to be smarter than everybody else because you're going to be right all the time. And your Facebook posts are going to get more likes than anybody else's. No, he doesn't say that. Thank you. He does not say that. Now he's talking to you. I know. Whoever just posted something, you should delete that right now. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm trying to help him, Lord. I'm trying to help him. I'm trying to help. I'm doing my best up here. He said, no, you're, they're going to know that you're mine by your love. By your love. Are we supposed to know stuff? Yes. 
Are we supposed to learn stuff? Yes. Does he want us to be right about things? Yes. Is learning, yeah, yeah the, right, the Bible talks about studying to show thyself approved. There's part of this journey is about learning. I get it. I'm a part of it. I love learning. But you got to love being with him first, or you will misuse that knowledge to serve yourself and your pride. I know because I've done it myself. John 3, verse 3, and I'm going to jump down to verse 5, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 11. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, which should say verily, verily, or truly, truly. Verse 5, Jesus replied, I assure you, which should say verily, verily, or truly, truly. Jumping down to verse 11. I assure you again, right? It should say verily, verily, or truly, truly. Sometimes the translation in, in trying to simplify it takes a treasure from us. That's why when you are studying and when you are learning, you should read from multiple different translations. Now, this is a critical part of the story. Because in Deuteronomy 7-9, we find this verse. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. Right? All throughout the Old Testament, we're given all these incredible names for God. And this is one of them. Faithful God. In the Hebrew, it's the, he is Amon El. Amon El, the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. Come on, that's a great promise. That'll help you find your prayer voice. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, one of the most learned, studied people in society, part of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. This, in order for him to have gotten to the place where he is, he would have at some point memorized, memorized, not the books of the Bible, but everything in the Bible from Genesis to Malachi, memorized. So Jesus looks at Nicodemus as they're sitting there. I picture them at a table off to the side. The disciples are asleep, and there's a candle burning, and Jesus looks at him through the flame, and he says, Aman, Aman. Immediately, Nicodemus knows exactly what Jesus is talking about because he knows this verse. And he keeps using this phrase again and again and again in their conversation. Before he says something, he goes, Aman, Aman. You know what that word gives us in the English language? Yeah, it gives us the word Amen. It gives us the word Amen. Amen is a transliteration of Aman because there isn't any word. When the Bible was translated into Greek and then when it jumps to English, there wasn't a word. So we, it's called a transliteration. We take a word and then we make it fit our language phonetically. That's why when we pray, we say amen. It's not saying the food's cold, let's eat. It's saying you believe, you finish your prayer with amen because we're saying that we believe that God is still the great Amonel, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. You're making a declaration of faith about who you believe God to be at the end of every prayer. That's, this is the birth of it right here. What he was saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, if you believe that God is the Amon El, then you should believe that about me because I am him. This is one of the great declarations, self-declarations of Jesus of his own divinity. This is important because he's saying to Nicodemus, I know that you are hungry for knowledge, brother. And I know that you want to learn. And what I'm saying to you is that there is a journey of truth that I will take you on for the rest of your days. But the way that you're going to learn with me and from me is going to be different than the way that you've learned up until now. Why do I say that? Because of where the conversation goes, where Jesus takes it. Verses 5 through 8 says, Jesus replied, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of heaven of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. Now here it comes. The wind blows wherever it wants. 
Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from. They didn't have Wavy News 10 2,000 years ago. Or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Now this verse has been misused, especially in charismatic Pentecostal circles like ours for too long, right? where it's just you're not accountable to anyone because you're just doing what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is about learning. We understand the Bible in light of itself. And what he's saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you have always recognized truth because you have been taught and raised up in a world where your brain is always in front of your heart. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, there will be things that I'm going to teach you that will feel true to you before they comprehend true to your mind. So he pulls something out of nature. They didn't have meteorological sciences like we have today. So he's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you don't understand the science of wind. You don't understand where it's come from, where it's going. But you acknowledge that it's real. They lived in a world where people traveled by ship and sails. They harnessed the wind. They trusted themselves to something that they did not understand, even though they recognized it was true. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you should let your heart get out in front of your head because that's just as dangerous. What Jesus is saying is, I've given you both a mind and a heart. They're supposed to work in concert together. And there are things that you're going to learn that you don't feel, and it's going to take some time for your heart to catch up. But there are also going to be some things, he's saying to Nicodemus, you've got to learn to feel that they are true because it's going to take time for your mind to catch up. And your mind not, might not ever catch up because some things are a mystery, which is why Paul talks about walking by faith and not by sight. This journey of knowing, this journey of knowledge, it's only healthy if it comes within the context of a passion and love for Jesus first, to be with him and to talk to him. And as we talk with him, we should be prepared that there are going to be things that we will feel the truth of them before we comprehend them. I'm just suggesting to you, this week, that you would ask Jesus this question. Jesus, show me something in my thinking that is wrong. Show me something in my thinking that is wrong. The last one is this. Nicodemus wanted to live for Jesus. So good. He wanted to be with him. He wanted to talk to him. He wanted to live for him. Because Nicodemus keeps popping up in the story. In John 7, 50-52, it says Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, right? The Holy Spirit inspiring John to give us some commentary so we know it's not some other Nicodemus. It's the same Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number. So we know that after he left that meeting, he said, I'm in. Because he learned in that moment something in his heart. He didn't understand it all. He hadn't figured it all out. But he knew he wanted to follow this man for the rest of his life. So here he is in a meeting of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish ruling council. And they're trying to figure out a way to condemn Jesus. We see Nick, this is so good. We see Nicodemus. The first time we see him, he's going at night. We understand why, because he's afraid. And now we see him in a public assembly with all of his peers, stands up and says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? You know what he's saying? You need to talk with him just like I did. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee, right? Because they're only about their heads, not their hearts. Nicodemus in that moment, he took some risks. He was willing to risk what had become most important to him, which was success in life, and now he realized there was something more important, and that's Jesus and living for him, even if it costs us everything.
Why do I say that? Because in John 19, 38 to 42, this is after Jesus' death on the cross. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph also was a disciple of Jesus, but for Joseph, secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And look who's with him. Not, not, Not any of the disciples are there. None of the people that were closest to Jesus were there. You know who showed up? Come on, Nicodemus. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. The Holy Spirit is buying John. Let's make sure that people see that it's the same man. Let's, let's let them see the progression of his journey. He wanted to be with him. He wanted to talk with him. But now he's living for him. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That's a fortune right there in today's dollars. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs at the place where Jesus was crucified. Do you understand the sacredness of this moment? Two men on the planet chosen by God to handle the lifeless body of Christ before he had risen from the dead. Stop it. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. You go, Nicodemus. I want to be like you when I grow up. Did you know the Bible tells a story? I'm telling you, i got all of heaven on my side tonight. Lightning and all and thunder at all the right time. See, you and I living for Jesus, it's going to look different for all of us in many ways. But in, but in some ways, from the day of Jesus' resurrection until the end of this age, for every person, we share one part of the same story. When we look into Scripture, we find that the story that the Bible tells begins in heaven. Now, I'm not talking about Genesis 1-1. As we read all of Genesis all the way to Revelation, what we find is the Bible actually stretches out the timeline from heaven to heaven, but the first heaven that you're going to see that pops up on the screen, the first heaven actually doesn't begin in the Garden of Eden. It begins with a story of rebellion. We're told in Scripture that there was an angel by the name of Lucifer who led a rebellion in heaven, and we're told in Scripture that a third of all the angels of heaven chose Lucifer's side, and there was a great battle. All of them lost, and they were cast out. Cast out. And what we believe here at City Life is that that caused God to come up with a plan that has led to us, that he wanted to create a new kind of creature. He wanted to create a new kind of creature, but he did not create us in heaven. He created us outside of heaven. And he created us outside of heaven in a world that he had created himself. And the reason I believe this is because God realized that we needed a comparative experience. What does that mean? I believe one of the reasons why the angels were subject to the temptation of rebellion is because paradise was all that they had ever known. Perfect was all that they had ever had. And when paradise and perfect is all that you have, you're subject to the temptation that maybe there's something out there that's better. And so God says, I'm going to create a new kind of creature. And I'm going to let them experience brokenness So that before they come back into heaven, they're going to know what it's like to not be in paradise. So he creates Adam and Eve. And I love this story. Where does he put them? He puts them in a perfect place. He creates a paradise for them. And God knows what's going to happen. He gives us free will, just like the creatures of heaven. They have free will. God's not a dictator. It didn't take long before Adam and Eve... They did what the rebellious angels did. They rebelled. They sinned. They disobeyed. And in that moment, something happened. Sin entered God's new world. 
And in that moment, the relationship between mankind and God fractured. There was a great chasm. There was a separation between us and God. And in the story of the Bible, it tells us some things about ourselves that we need to understand. In the story of the Bible, it says to you and me that we are descendants of Adam and Eve, which means that we inherit their nature. It means that we're sinners. We're going to have to be judged for that sin, and the consequence of that sin is eternal death. If you don't think that you and I are born into this world as sinners, I say this all the time, pass the background check, go volunteer in the nursery. Because ain't nobody had to teach those kids how to be selfish. Human nature at its core, wants to always have its own way. Wants to have its own way. The Bible uses this phrase in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I love the imagery of falling short. It's saying to us, we do not have what it takes on our own to bridge that gap. We will fall short every time. We can't make it across. And then what we find in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, for mankind is destined to die once and then to face judgment. You and I, at some point, we are going to breathe our last. No matter how far science advances, at some point, we're going to come to our end. And the Bible says that we're going to have to give an account for our lives. We're going to be judged. It's like a professor who gives the answers to the test in advance. Jesus says to you and to me, if you step into that judgment and have done nothing, have done nothing, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Now, there's a second part to that verse. I'm going to come to that in just a minute. But I love the fact that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to use the word wage because he wants us to understand we earned it. We earned it. Now, God says, I've got an answer for all three of these. Because what I'd like to offer you is a new heart. See, this was part of God's plan from the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world, it did not catch him off guard. This is part of his plan. This is part of the journey. This is part of the story. He says, I want to give you a new heart. He does not take away the human heart. He just gives us a new heart to combat against it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The old being gone doesn't mean that you'll never be tempted again. The old is gone doesn't mean that you're never going to to struggle with selfish desires. What he's saying is, I'm going to now give you a choice. I'm going to put another nature inside of you that's going to long for righteous things and for good things, for my things. But you still got to choose. And even though up until this point where you get a new heart, you've got a lot of misdeeds that you need to be forgiven of, I've got a plan for that. Because in Romans 5, 8, it says that God commended, demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's got a plan for our forgiveness. And isn't this great? God doesn't just say their forgiveness is only for before your new heart. After you get a new heart, everything else is on you. No, no, no. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart, but I know that you're still going to fail. But that's okay. I'm willing to forgive that too. Because what I want you to have is eternal life. See, the same person that gives us the gospel of John gives us 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John, we find these verses in chapter 5 where he says to you and I, this is a paraphrase, but he's saying to you and to me that there is a gift that God wants to give to us. It's a gift. It's contrasting with Romans 6.23, which Paul also calls it a gift. The wages of sin of death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John's saying there's a gift. You can't earn it. It's a gift. And the only way that you can have this gift is through Jesus. John says there, 1 John chapter 5. And then he restates it two other times. He says, I want you to understand that if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. And if you don't, you won't. And then he says, again, restating it a third time. He says this. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Incredible. This is the story of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. And you have a part to play in it. 
Now, at some point in our lives, we feel the emptiness, just like Nicodemus did in our story tonight. And we begin searching and looking, and maybe you, like me, at some point, you came to some conclusions. Maybe I wouldn't be emptied if I would just do good things. Or maybe I wouldn't be as empty if I thought good thoughts. Or or maybe I wouldn't feel this emptiness if I would just be a good person. But can I just tell you, good doesn't get you from left to right. Good doesn't get you from one side to the other. Good doesn't get you the new heart. Good doesn't get you forgiveness. And good doesn't get you eternal life. You're going to catch up with me, JJ? So God has a plan to get us across from one side to the other. And that plan is Jesus. See, in our story tonight, John 3, 16. Maybe the most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus left heaven to come here to be with us. This is what sets Jesus apart from any other religious leader who has ever come and whoever will come. Because everybody else, they start just like the rest of us. But Jesus started in heaven. The pre-existence of Christ is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Everyone. And I like to say all the time, If I'm going to trust somebody to tell me how to get to somewhere, I want it to be someone who's already been there. And Jesus is the only one who's ever been to heaven. And he talks about that in his conversation with Nicodemus. And when he dies on the cross, he puts into this creation a bridge for mankind and God for us to be reconciled to one another. In Acts 4, we find this incredible verse, there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. No other name. His alone. That's it. But you got to do some walking, people. you you, you got to do some walking. You, you've got to take some steps to get from this side to that side. And in John chapter 1, it says, to as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the children of God. Not born of flesh, but born of the Spirit. And then Paul comes along in Romans chapter 10 and gives us three important words to help us understand the steps that we've got to take. One, you've got to hear the story like you're hearing it tonight. Maybe somebody here is hearing it for the first time. Maybe you're watching online and you've never heard the story of the Bible presented to you from start to finish before. At some point, God causes your path to cross with this story. And when you hear it, you've got to choose to believe it. And if you believe it, there's some confessing that you've got to do. And Paul tells us what it is right there in Romans chapter 10. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. What does that mean? It means that you get to walk across the bridge. You get to walk across the bridge. You're born into the family of God. That's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3. We're born into his family. And then you spend the rest of your days here on this earth in God's family. Where did Jesus go? Oh, he went somewhere. He went back to heaven. Now, is he still here? Sure he is because he's omnipresent. That's a whole divinity thing. That's another sermon for another time. But his primary presence is in heaven. And you know what he's doing? He's getting it ready for you and me. Stop it. In John 14, Jesus said, my father has a house, and you're supposed to live there with me. And until you get there, I'm making it ready for you. I don't know about you, but if Jesus is making something ready for me, I want to see it. I want to see it. I love what Keith Green said. Where's Anthony? Come on. I know. He said, if God created this world in seven days, and at the end of it, when it was perfect, it's as beautiful as it is. If if he's been working on heaven for 2,000 years, this renovation, then this world is like living in a garbage can. And if he doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, can you imagine? This is your part in the story, is to make sure 
that you know this story, if you believe this story. And if you've been born into God's family, God is going to bring people to you so that they can hear, so that they can believe, and so they can confess. And one day, when it's all said and done, and some of us are a little bit closer than the rest of you, we're going to meet him there. John 3, 3. Unless the person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of heaven. I want to see it, and I want to see you there. I want to see you there. And you know what we bring to heaven with us? Listen to this. We bring a comparative experience. And once we get there, because we've known what it's been like to not be there, because we've known what it's like to be in brokenness, because we've known what it's like to fail and sorrow and everything else that's hurtful and harmful in this world, when we get to there, we are never, for all eternity, going to want anything else. And can I just tell you, too, that there are other creatures in heaven that were created in heaven. There's all kinds of creatures in heaven the Bible talks about, not just angels, but two-thirds of the angels that chose God's side, all the other creatures of heaven, all that they've ever known is perfection. So you know what we've been doing since the beginning of time? We've been playing out in front of them. And even though they still know perfection, they have been watching for thousands of years what hurt and pain and brokenness is and it feels like. And we bring that gift to them when we get there. Come on. There is a treasure that God has put into you that you're supposed to bring to heaven for eternity. Your own journey of sorrow, your own journey of pain, your own journey of brokenness is a gift that you bring to a perfect place. Stand with me. We're not going to do a song, so I've taken all the time. But I don't care. Cold air rushing out of a limestone sinkhole atop a big hill west of Luray, Virginia, blew out a candle held by Andrew Campbell, the, teen, the town tinsmith. On the morning of August 13th of 1878, so began the discovery of Luray Caverns. Campbell, three other men, and his 13-year-old nephew, Quint, were exploring the area looking for a cave. With the help of a local photographer, Benton Stebbins, the men dug away loose rocks for four hours before, candle in hand, Campbell and Quint slid down a rope into the cave. They could scarcely believe what they saw. The party had discovered the largest series of caverns in the east, an eerie world of stalactites and stalagmites, seen by the light of the candle, plaguing children for generations on tests to not know which one's the top and which one's the bottom. At the time of the discovery, Sam Burricker of Luray owned the land on which the cavern entrance was found. But because of uncollected debts, a court-ordered auction of all his land was held on September 14, 1878. Poor Sam. Andrew Campbell and William Campbell and Benton Stebbins purchased the cave track, keeping their discovery secret of the sale. Some shrewd businessmen. Word reached the page courier, and that week there was a note about the sudden rise in the property values of Cave Hill. Andrew Broadus's account in the October 3rd issue of the Page Courier was an article giving a lavish description of the cave, ending with the statement that the proprietors are now at work with a good force preparing for an early illumination. Alexander J. Brandt Jr., correspondent of the New York Herald, was the first to travel and to write about Luray Caverns, international paper. It's, it's a magnificent cave. He told townspeople, the most beautiful I've ever seen, trying to compare your cave to others would be like comparing New York City to the town of Luray. With those words, the public's interest in visiting the caverns, it began, and the rest is history. This is what I want you to know tonight. Sometimes something happens when you stop reading the Bible for information, when you stop treating the Bible as a textbook. It may not happen every time. It may not happen every time. But if you approach the Bible with the expectancy of an explorer, 
like Andrew Campbell and his companions, there will be moments when it feels as though the earth gives way beneath your feet and you discover something that you did not know was possible. That you will find something lovely and life-altering in that place that you thought you would never discover. Father, I pray for every person that's here tonight that this week they're going to feel the earth give way beneath their feet and you're going to invite them into a place that is otherworldly and supernatural like they have never seen before. And in that place that there is going to be a passion is going to be birthed inside of them for you. Not, Not just for their sake. Not just for their sake. But for the part of the story that they're supposed to carry to the rest of the world so that everyone might hear, so that everyone might believe, and so that everyone might confess. I'm just going to do this in this moment of privacy. I know I'm off the clock just a little bit, but we're going to end in just a few moments. I'm just going to ask you to keep your head bowed just because I want to create a moment of privacy. But, but if you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I have never heard the story of the Bible like that before, and that you've never stepped into a moment of believing, that you've never stepped into a moment of confessing, that maybe you're here tonight and you would say, as I look back onto the story of my life, I've never made a vow of devotion to Christ. Just going to invite you to slip your hand up wherever you are. Now, we're not going to linger here long. Just We don't want to leave this moment. If you're at home tonight, I'm just telling you, even if you've got family in the room with you, you just slip it up where you are. You just slip it up where you are. If you're online, there's a button on the screen that you can push to ask for prayer, and you'll go to a private chat room, and someone's there to pray for you. If you're here tonight, and you raised your hand, or or maybe you didn't, but you know that you should, then we're going to be here at the front of the altar. I know it's raining outside, and so normally we ask people to talk outside, but if you can't do that and there's people here that you want to connect with, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and make sure you get your kids if you've got kids in child care. But then you can go to that end of the facility, which would be to your right, all the way down. There's a large foyer, a large hallway down there. You can talk and hang out there as long as you want. But if you're going to stay in here, I'm just going to ask that you would stay in a place of prayer and worship. We're going to have people that are come now. We're going to be down here at the front. This is how we close every service. We just, we want to be here to minister in prayer to you if you need it. And if not, we'll see you next week.